0: So right from the get-go, I need to let you all know that we will be in Lamentations 3 today so that um, your treasure hunt can begin. If you have a pew Bible, you have hit the jackpot um, because all you need to do is go to page 685. For everyone else, Lamentations uh, is found in your Bible just after Jeremiah, uh, which is kind of after Psalms, uh, and it is a tiny five-chapter book that we will be spending time in today. I know many of you, but many of you I do not yet know. Uh, My name is Josh Gallagher, and my wife, and I've been members at this church for years. The reason I don't know many of you is several of you became part of this faith family here at TCC while my wife and I were in Germany for a little over a year and a half, um, With my work there. So I am excited to be here with you today to open God's Word from Lamentations. But I also realize that this is going to be very difficult. You see, sometimes sermon writing is really easy. You have a text, the points are relatively straightforward. You draw up some illustrations, you make an application, and you're done. But sometimes sermon writing hurts. Sometimes it is the overflow of a wrestling match between you and God and the world. That's what this sermon is today. Originally, Sean had asked for me to continue on in our series in Luke, and I was happy to have done that. And in many ways, I wish that is what had happened. It certainly would have been easier. But instead, Sean asked for me today to share from the overflow of what God did in mine and my wife Tracy's life as we lived in Germany. So today, church, we have some catching up to do. The time I was gone from our church here was a difficult time, not only in America, but in the world. Terrorism continued to grow as a force around the world, manufacturing fear and anger in ways perhaps unseen in our history. My wife and I, on a few occasions, ourselves narrowly missed, but for the grace of God, the deadly effects of ISIS. The airport in Brussels was attacked Maybe 12 or 14 hours before we were due to be there. We miss being mowed down by a truck in Nice by days. And the weekend before the attack in Berlin, my wife was there at the Christmas market. But this has not been the only thing our world has been contesting with. Racial strife grew not only in America, but around the world. In the States, a series of tragic police shootings of black men polarized the country. While in Germany, issues of immigration and terrorism led to horrific acts of hate against immigrants and to the growth of a now powerful alt-right political mo- movement in Germany known as the AFD. Church, there is something that I learned In Germany that I think we need to learn and remember as a church. And that is we need to learn what it means to lament. I want us to learn today how the gospel advances as we weep over sin and suffering. And I want us to see how as we wait for the justice of the Lord to come. As fear and chaos and destruction and death seem to reign. That we can have hope. So, indeed, church, we have some catching up to do today. My prayer is that God would meet with us in power as we do. Let's pray. Lord, I pray. I plead, let me make a difference today that is utterly disproportionate to who I am. For I am vile and sinful. My heart desires every way but yours. And yet, you brought to life my dead heart. In the power of the gospel, every failure that I have made, Christ succeeded in my place. Every imperfect prayer that I have ever prayed, Christ has stood mediating perfectly even now before the Father. With words too deep to understand. God, I feel today that we understand celebration, we understand praise, but we have forgotten what it means to lament, what it means to be broken over our sin. We have forgotten what it means to be rescued from the depths of our shame and sin and rebellion. What it has meant for us to be adopted as sons and daughters of the King. God, we have forgotten that time when you broke into our lives and in brokenness healed us. God, remind us, help us today to be broken before you. So God, we plead, meet with us today. Send your spirit to move in power in this place. In your name we pray, amen. Suffering really does pose the most difficult questions. And as we open the book of Lamentations, the opening verse poses the question that will haunt the people of God throughout the book. Look with me in chapter 1, verse 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She who is great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces, has now become a slave. The title of Lamentations in the Hebrew also begins the first verse in chapters 1 here, in chapters 2, and also in chapter 4. And it simply poses the question, how? How? How did this happen? How has suffering entered into the city of God? Lamentations from the outset does not ignore the heaviness of questioning present suffering. In fact, as we read through Lamentations today, we will see that rather than denying the brutal reality of the Babylonian siege, Lamentations reveals to us the fullness of the misery and death in every gritty detail that had besieged God's city and God's people. You see, even if God's people wanted to close their eyes, even if they wanted to work to shut out the suffering around them, the text does not allow it. In verse 1, we see slavery. In verse 2, abandonment. In verse 3, distress. In verse 4, anguish. In 5, suffering. In verse 7, violation and shame. In verse 9, affliction. In verse 11, being despised. In 13, growing faint. In verse 15, the people of God are trodden over and crushed. Desolation reaches them in verse 16. And torment and death are their end in verse 20. It becomes clear quickly that not a single detail is glossed over as the author considers the fullness of the suffering presently presented to God's people. Therefore, Lamentations 1 through 3 provides the context of suffering necessary for us as God's people to answer the following question. How does the gospel advance as God's people weep and wait? Today, in chapter 1, I want us to see that the gospel goes forward as we weep over our own sin. And this will become especially clear as we consider verses 8 and 9. Next, I pray that we will see that the gospel advances as we mourn over sin in the world and connect with those who suffer. And this is clear, especially in 2, 20 through 22. And thirdly, pray that we will see that God moves powerfully and prophetically among those who, though broken and weary of waiting, trust God to bring about His kingdom. So let's get started. As we've already mentioned, the sin and suffering of the people of God are on full display throughout the first chapter of Lamentations. And this is perhaps no clearer than when we reach verses 8 and 9 a little later in the chapter, where the image of God's people as a harlot is put forward graphically by the author. Read with me in the text, starting in verse 8. Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she has become filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanliness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. We see here she cries, O Lord. Behold my affliction, for my enemy has triumphed. Here we see the personification of Jerusalem as an adulterous wife who is unfaithful toward her husband. This amplifies the feeling of shame and suffering that swells throughout the opening chapter. As we look back, just one book in Jeremiah chapter 2. We see that God's people have not always been viewed in this light. As Israel's early devotion to God presented an image of his people as a pure and a clean bride. In Jeremiah 2.2 2, we see the Lord saying go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth your love as a bride. How you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Even when it is clear, as in Hosea 2, that God's people have given themselves to other lovers, it remains clear that God's covenant remains in place and that God's people can always return to him. In verse 7 of chapter 2 of Hosea, we see that God's people Israel shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but shall not find them. And then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better off for me then than it is now. The Lord responds to this in verse 14, saying, Behold, I will allure her. I will allure my people and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. This is what is leading up to Lamentations. But now that we are in the middle of Lamentations 1, these passages are... These passages are contrasted in the starkest possible terms. As God's people, the bride of God, have violated their marriage covenant. And hope and redemption appear nowhere in sight. Adele Berlin writes that just as the sin of God's people is expressed graphically in the unfaithfulness and adultery of Lady Jerusalem. So her shame is expressed in the stark terms of nakedness, disgrace, and abuse it cannot be denied that jerusalem is the object of derision and shame and this impurity and infidelity is strongly implied as jerusalem is abandoned by all of her lovers and we see that several places in the chapter but most powerfully in verse 2 and as we look at the text here we see God's people, Lady Jerusalem, abandoned and alone. All of the lovers that she thought were meant for her have abandoned her. She is naked, unclean. Everyone that formerly honored her now despises her, for they have seen her in all of her shame, in all of her dirtiness. Her filthiness literally clings to her skirt. In Lamentations 1, if suffering does nothing else, it does this it provides the opportunity for God's people to be broken over their sin and confess it to God. Lament weeping well begins as god's people become increasingly broken and gripped over the effect of sin's work in their own hearts and lives look with me at the text beginning in verse 18 the lord is in the right for i have rebelled against his word but hear all you peoples and see my suffering my young women and my young men have gone into captivity I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because of my rebellion. People of God had placed their hope in other lovers. And as the nation of Israel grew increasingly rebellious, they worked to fill the stomachs of their souls with the pleasures of this world and not with the fullness of God's word and all of his rich promises to them. They had forgotten that any standing that they had in this world, any privilege or power that had been given to them by God was to be used to glorify God and God alone. In one book previous to this, in Jeremiah chapter 13, God pronounces the judgment that we read about here. In verse 9, the Lord says, Even so, I will spoil the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow after their own heart and have gone after other gods to serve and to worship them. It's amazing how often our own pride brings about suffering, not just in our own lives, but in the world. A little over a year ago, while I was in Frankfurt, Germany, um, here in America, on July 5th of last year, a man named Alton Sterling was killed by police in front of a convenience store. His death, like Philando Castile's, was captured on video. No charges were ever filed by the Justice Department. Twitter and Facebook erupted in the aftermath with hashtags like All Lives Matter battling against Black Lives Matter battling against Blue Lives Matter. I was riding on the way to dinner with a colleague of mine who... It's one of my favorite people in this world. She's African-American and I. She was, just, she was just sad. I asked her what happened and she began to talk to me about this and about all of the other times over the course of that year that Lives like hers seemed to not matter. She invited me into her life by telling me about how she grew up. That she went to a largely white school and, for most of her early school days, was ridiculed because of how she looked, the way she dressed. Where she lived and where she came from. She talked to me about how the excitement that I had felt in learning how to drive had truly been terrorizing for her. And this all came to a head as she went to visit a friend one day. And was pulled over in a largely wealthy neighborhood And a police officer informed her that she should be careful here. Because there's not many people like her around. Church, for a long time I have known that central to the gospel... Is ethnic conciliation. You can't read Ephesians 2 without seeing that. That Jesus died to make multiple bloodlines one bloodline. That Jesus came to break down the dividing walls. Every single dividing wall that exists between every group of warring peoples. But it took going to Germany. And having a conversation with a dear friend and co-worker to realize that for most of my life I had not seen myself as part of this problem. I truly saw myself sinless in all of it. But I have sinned and there are a thousand hurtful, shameful prejudices that I have held in my heart that has minimized the image of God in fellow human beings that God desires to redeem through the same blood of Jesus that has made me white and pure and clean and has washed over me and made me a family with brothers and sisters around this world. You see, the power of lamentations is that it reveals what happens as the powerful and privileged abandons God, God's call And the call is this, to care for the widow and the outcast, the foreigner and the orphan, the powerless and the poor. Central to the gospel is what God does in making bloodlines a bloodline, in bringing together people from every tribe and tongue and nation and people group into one family. So church, if we do not lament the part that we have played in preventing God from building his family, then I promise you the gospel will not go forward through us. You see, in talking with my colleague and my friend, she's not a believer. She doesn't know that she can ever be a believer because I am the first person that she has ever met who is an evangelical that had any idea at all Any view at all toward my sin? Any view at all toward the ways that I was building up walls as God desired to tear them down? The power of what happens in lamentations is it begins in its calling. It calls us to be broken and to repent. And as we constantly celebrate, as we constantly praise, we miss the opportunity to move into a space of brokenness and hurt and to understand the depth of the grace that is available as Jesus took on the sin of the world. Every last ounce of sin, every last ounce of God's wrath, Christ has already taken on and borne in our place that we are freed up to love and love well. We miss this as we miss lament. As we skip over these small five chapters in the middle of our Bibles. So Lamentations 1 invites us to revive the practice of lament. God's people here recognize that all is not right in the world. It certainly is not all right in our hearts. Therefore, lament, genuine lament must also involve shame. We don't like to talk about that very much. But it's here in the text. We can't ignore it. We've seen that Lady Jerusalem is presented in all of her nakedness and abandonment. And speaks to the suffering of God's people. And locates its cause in her own rebellion. Therefore true reconciliation. Justice And shalom requires a remembering of suffering, an unearthing of shameful history, and a willingness by God's people to enter into lament. Church, we have not lived for the glory of God as we should. We have ignored him and run out on our first true love lovers that protect our privilege and pride instead of rip it apart. As Sung Chain Ra writes, lament here calls for an authentic encounter with the truth and challenges privilege because privilege would hide any truth that creates discomfort. Church, just because we have heard the gospel once does not mean that we need to be done hearing it. Hear this, just because we have heard the gospel once does not mean that its work is done in our lives and we can turn it off and stop listening. We need to hear the gospel and know that our sin put to death the Son of God. We need to feel the fullness of the weight of that and know that that weight is not ours to carry, but that it has been put upon Christ and crucified with Him. Church, we must lament over our sin. Over our anger toward our spouses. Over our anxiety that we cannot control everything at work or at home. Over our laziness and our uncaring hearts toward our children. Over our bitterness that we didn't receive the promotion that we deserved. or felt like we did. It is time that we lament That we have leveraged our privilege and power, for me in particular as a white male, to build my own kingdom instead of giving it away that God's kingdom would be built and that the gospel would advance in power. It is time, church, to fill our eyes with tears and that our hearts be broken over our refusal to turn our eyes toward the downcast, the outcast, the suffering in this world. As in Lamentations, we cannot ignore the suffering that is before us. As we lament, we cannot shut it out. So church, right now, I don't know what your week look like. Your sufferings are a message to you. Do not despise them. Do not waste them. But see, as we will today, that God is at work in the midst of suffering to produce a glory that is unimaginable. As David Brainerd wrote that, there's a God in heaven who overrules all things for the best, and that is the sole comfort for my soul. So we've seen in chapter 1 that the gospel advances as we mourn over our own sin. But we see as we transition from the end of chapter 1 into chapter 2 that the gospel advances as we mourn over sin in the world also and connect with those who are suffering. As the first chapter concludes, one final point has to be made. And this propels us into the second chapter. When you get home, read Lamentations 1 again. And notice in the text that the sins of others are not the focus of God's people. It certainly would have been easy for the Israelites to have used this lament to confess the sins of the cruel Babylonians and everything that they had exacted against them. But instead they confess their own sin. This is crucial. Please don't miss this. Focusing on our own sin and confessing it to God in the midst of suffering does not exonerate the sin of others. Nor does it minimize the agony of sin and its work in the world. Instead, it opens our eyes rightly to see evil and its work in this world and further presses us back into our own hearts and into our need for the gospel. As we suffer and as we become broken over our sin, we turn with tear filled eyes to the world that is also broken, and we are led in that place of mourning to hate sin all the more and then to cry out for deliverance. So, what is it that the people of God in Lamentations need deliverance from? Yes, they need deliverance from the siege of the Babylonians. Yes, they need deliverance from their hunger and from their pain. But what they really need is deliverance from sin at work in their hearts and from the destruction of sin that is at work in the world. Look with me at Lamentations 2 starting in verse 11. The author writes, My eyes are spent with weeping and my stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. Verse 13, what can I say for you? To what can I compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken you to that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Again, look as the author continues in 20 through 22. The author begs of the Lord, look and see, with whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb? Should children of their tender care be devoured? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You've killed them in your day of anger, slaughtering without pity. The author here looks upon the suffering of the people of Jerusalem. And he states that the ruin is as vast as the sea. Imagine yourself standing on the shore. Looking out at the ocean. And there's that point on the horizon where the sea and the sky meet. And they really just kind of bleed into one another. And it appears that the sea ends there, but you know that it goes forward past that point. This is what the author is trying to get us to connect with here in the text. He desires for us to raise our eyes up out of our own sin and suffering and to see that the suffering in the world goes forth as the sea. The work of sin in our lives and in the world brings about destruction and ruin that seemingly has no end. This should lift our eyes to recognize what is happening before us and break our hearts at the pervasiveness of sin and suffering in this fallen world. The aim here is not just to see the vastness of sin. It is to connect with and understand the depth of sin's destructive force in our lives and in the world. In verse 12, infants and babies faint, left in the streets of the city with no food. In verse 20, mothers are so hungry that they are driven to devour their own children. Priests instead of leading worship in the center of God's sanctuary, are murdered. Death reigns where life should. Young and old lie together, desolate in the streets. Young men and young women have their lives cut short way too soon by the sword. The entirety of what is transpiring in chapter 2 convicts the reader that this is not the way the world should be. Mothers should not consume their young. Youth should not have their lives cut short by the sword. Worship and not murder should take place in the center of the sanctuary. And yet, despite the fact that chaos and destruction seem to reign here, God Himself stands. Sovereignly at the center of everything that is transpiring in Lamentations. As we look through verses 1-8. through We see that every single action is attributed to God. It is the Lord that is covered up. He's hurled down. He's swallowed up. He is torn down. He has cut off and withdrawn His right hand. He has strung His bow. And slain, and poured out his wrath, he has swallowed up, he has multiplied mourning and lamenting, he has laid waste, he has destroyed and spurned, the Lord has rejected. Every line in the opening salvo of Lamentations 2 places God as the subject, followed by the corresponding action. So while marauders from the north may be the human agents of destruction, as Leslie Allen points out, the Babylonians here are blatantly replaced by God, whose instruments the troops were deemed to be, just as Assyria was the rod of Yahweh's anger against Judah in Isaiah 10. Church, in reality, we can never escape God's sovereignty. Part of living, part of learning to live as faithful children of the Sovereign Father is tied to trusting Kim when he can at best be only dimly discerned behind events and circumstances that the Bible itself is quick to label evil. So as we lift our tear-filled eyes from the brokenness, and sin at work in our own hearts. To the brokenness and sin that is at work in the world. Our gaze should be lifted further still. Upward to God. Who is as the psalmist writes in Psalm 115. In the heavens doing all that he pleases. God is working. Sovereignly right now in the midst of suffering. Suffering. And strife. And he's doing it to bring about glory unimaginable. When I was in Germany, I met a man named Nasir. Nasir's from Syria. He grew up steeped in the traditions of Islam. They never really resonated for him. His Family was relatively well off, so he was provided many opportunities in life and eventually became a dental surgeon. Around two years ago, the war that wages on in Syria came to his town. So we talked, I asked him if he knew that this was going to happen, and he said, yes, of course. That's why I've been trying to come to America Yet I was unable to come. And at this I had to know why. I asked the question that Lamentations asked. How is this the case? He said that he didn't understand either. Why he was unable to come here to escape terror that surrounded and live in the freedom that we have here. He was unsure because he was relatively well off. He certainly had the finances to provide for himself to not just come here, but also to sustain life here. He had absolutely no ties to extremism because Islam was not even an important factor in his life. He was marginally, if at all, religious. Lastly, he already had distant relatives that lived in this country. He did not understand what criteria that needed to be met that he did not meet. But he imagined that the reason that he could not come was that most people in America are more concerned about the potential threat to their lives than the actual threat to his. So he took his family north. He used the resources that he had to smuggle his country to the north of Turkey. He and his wife and his young son boarded one of the boats that you see about on the news that sink so often, leading to massive loss of life. As they powered their way across the Mediterranean, when they were about a quarter of a mile off the coast of Greece, the boat began to break and sink talked about grabbing his wife and his child and jumping off of this ship hoping against hope that they would not perish he swam with his child in one arm using his other to paddle occasionally and support his wife they made it to shore having lost most of the very few and precious possessions that they brought with them He used the last of the money that he had to find a way into Germany and they were smuggled into Germany a few weeks later. As we talked, my mind could not help but return to lamentations. The picture of bombs going off as far as the eye could see. The never-ceasing Rings of gunfire that surround like a trap of death. Destruction reaching as far as the horizon appears to go and beyond. When he spoke of his family still stuck in Syria, moving constantly to avoid capture by ISIS, I envisioned the people of Jerusalem here running, doing everything they can to try to avoid being slain in the streets by the sword. Friends, as we become increasingly aware of sin in our own life, we become increasingly aware of sin's work in the world. And it pushes us, the gospel pushes us to connect with those who are suffering from the effects of sin and brokenness and the fallenness of this world. But as you connect with those who are suffering in the world, it cannot, it should not escape your notice. That God is sovereign over every last ounce of suffering in the world. And is using it currently to proclaim the glories of his excellencies to all of the world. You see it is no accident that this man boarded a boat and came to Germany. To a small town in the middle of nowhere East Germany. An hour west of Berlin. It's no accident that my wife and I boarded a plane and went to Germany to work so that we could meet, so that I could proclaim the excellencies of God in brokenness and lament to this man who so clearly has experienced in ways that I do not yet know the effects of sin at work in this world. Do not think for a second. Do not cheapen God's work for a second by denying that he is sovereign in the suffering that is happening in this world. But church, as we refuse to be broken over our sin, as we refuse to lift our eyes and acknowledge the work of sin in the world, the gospel will not go forward through our lives. God does not use the proud and the haughty of this world to proclaim the excellencies of his glory. He does not use them because they are too busy proclaiming the excellencies of their own glory. Of their own power and might. The one who does not live humbly before the Lord. Is too concerned with their own cares to notice the cares and the needs of others in this world. So now as we reach the end of Lamentations 2. A sweeping vision begins to emerge that wrecks and changes every priority that we have. Maximal comfort in this fallen world is now quite low on the agenda. Isn't it church? The real question is how are our current circumstances tied to our faith in Jesus? Our peace with God and our prospect of seeing him in glory. This is why Paul insists that we rejoice not only in the hope of the glory of God, but that we glory right now in our suffering Because as Romans 5 says, we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character rings out hope. So we are left now, church, to see that God indeed moves powerfully and prophetically among those who though broken and weary of waiting, trust God to bring about his kingdom. Church biblical lament wells up hope in the heart. Even in Lamentations 2, where hope seems nowhere to be found, glimpses of hope reside in the cries of God's people. As God's people wait for deliverance from sin and suffering in the world, they wait trusting in God's character. In verse 20 of chapter 2, the author questions, look and see with whom have you dealt thus? The question of lamentations doesn't end. How could it be this way? Should priests and prophet be killed? Should women eat the fruit of their own womb? No! But as Ra concludes in his work, prophetic lament, the absence of explicit hope and the book of Lamentations does not diminish the existence of a very real hope underneath the surface of incredibly real suffering. The hope that lies underneath is a recognition that God has to act because to not answer injustice is not in his nature. To not redeem his people would be to break his covenant and make him a liar, which he is not. The truth of God's character, though masked by the darkness of immense suffering, shines forth in its full brightness in chapter 3. We're hoping God in the midst of suffering is finally revealed. Look with me at chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. The author writes this. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. As we look at this text, church, that Suffering of God's people hasn't evaporated. It didn't just go away. Change in circumstance is not the hope of God's people. In fact, for 64 verses, the fullness of sin and suffering in the world has crescendoed to the point where the author states in verse 20 that his soul continually remembers it. Do you know suffering like that? Suffering that you can't escape. That is constantly in front of you. And yet in verse 21, a truth bursts forth through the darkness and the chaos of circumstance that brings hope. And it is the unshakable, unfading, glorious truth of God's character. And that character shatters every single lie of the evil one. Despite suffering, despite death, despite all of the sinful forces at work in the world, the steadfast love of the Lord does not cease. There is no suffering that can stop the love of God. There is no hurt so deep that it cannot be mended by the balm of the gospel. Just as in chapters 1 and 2, destruction seemed to span past the horizon of the world, in Lamentations 3, the mercy of God goes farther still. It has no end. Hey, okay. Sin and suffering in the world causes us to feel like Lady Jerusalem, stranded and under siege. Cut off and abandoned no hope no food what is our hope In verse 24 the author says that the Lord is his portion and therefore he will hope in him I had a counseling professor that once said that we deserved hell and anything else that we didn't receive anything else we received in this life was a blessing For the one who has come to know the beauties of God's grace, they have not tasted hell and its horrors. This means that no matter what is taken from you in this life, no matter what sickness comes your way, no matter how unfairly and unjustly you are treated, you have your fullness in Jesus. He is your portion. You have not tasted hell. He has delivered you. You have all you need. It's clear that God is at work in the advance of the gospel and weeping and waiting, but church, He is good in the work that He's bringing about. The suffering that you are in the middle of now is being wrung out and wrought by God to produce good in your life and in this world. 25 through 27. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. As we weep and wait, the people of God need to look to him and see that he isn't just at work. Church, he's good in the work he's bringing about. Here it is not God's love that is a passing phase, but it is his anger that passes. Therefore, as God's people suffer, they can, like the author, respond in faith that God is still good. As we look at the text in 25 through 27, the poet places good at the beginning of each of these three verses suffering evil and pain are not God's last word because his love is never finished his mercy is not done the author finds hope in nothing else other than the unwavering faithful character of God who is working right now despite the pain despite the darkness despite death and suffering to bring about good in our lives to bring about good in the world This means that there is no marriage today that is too far gone for God to restore. He is at work. This means there is no child so rebellious that God cannot still grip their heart. He is at work. This means there is no racial strife that can exist that the gospel is not powerful to shatter. He is at work. There is no circumstance, no suffering, no darkness, no pain, no disease, no terrorist, no scheme of the devil or the evil one or of man that is so great that God cannot bring about good from it. He is at work and he is good, church. How does lament end? talked a lot about repentance we've talked a lot about connecting with others who are suffering we've talked a lot about the advance of the gospel but where do we go from here you would expect lamentations to give you an answer right it's a whole book about how to suffer but lamentations ends With the people of God in verse 22, wondering if God is ever going to deliver them. The reality is, they had not yet seen what was going to save them. You see, This old Jerusalem was never going to be able to save itself. There was nothing that the people of God were going to be able to wield or do in their own power to bring about their own deliverance. What they needed was their Messiah. What they're crying out for is Jesus. And we see in the Gospels that as Jesus breaks in, something remarkable begins to happen. His kingdom begins to break into the world too. He calls sinners to repentance. He connects with the broken in this world. And in these actions, the gospel, the good news, the only hope for salvation in this world, moves forward in power all the way to the suffering, torment, torture, and death of the Son. You want to tell me that God doesn't work in suffering? The most powerful act in human history was accomplished through torture and death as Jesus raised up over all of it. Out of all of it. To defeat death and sin and suffering once and for all. He accomplished what the people of old Jerusalem could not accomplish. And his kingdom broke in that new Jerusalem would come. The ending of Lamentations and how we lament isn't found in Lamentations. It's found in Revelation 21. Our hope isn't left in the old Jerusalem. It's found in the new one. Turn with me to Revelation 21. The author of Revelation writes this. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Stop right here. Remember back to Lamentations 1. What is Jerusalem in the brokenness and fallenness of this world? She's abandoned. She is not cared for. She is left in her filthiness and her shame. But yet now Christ's work has entered into this world. And is being consummated in the coming of His kingdom. And now the people of God are no longer abandoned. They are no longer left hungry and fearing death. They are adorned beautifully as a bride for Christ. And the church hears this word in verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Notice again the contrast from Lamentations. In verse 4. There are no more tears left. He wipes them all away from their eyes. And death shall be no more. There are no more dead children in the street. No more mothers devouring their young. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things, every single former thing has passed away. And the one seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he says to the author, Write these things down, for they are trustworthy and true. Church, as we weep and wait, and as the gospel advances, know that this is not our home. Our hope is in the kingdom that is to come, and in the blood of a Savior who, though beaten and died, was raised so that the gospel would advance to every corner of the world through our weeping and waiting, that a new Jerusalem, a new family with members from every tribe and tongue and nation and people might be brought together to weep no more and worship forever. Church, we need to to lament. We need to be broken over our sin. Against our neighbor, against our family, against our coworker, against those who don't look like us. Because if we don't lament, the power of the gospel will never break in in fullness and bring about the kingdom in the realest sense right now in our city. See, normally today we would take the Lord's Supper, but today that's not the game plan. That's not in the cards. What we're going to do today is the band's going to come up and we're going to worship. And we're going to lament. And it is only when we have lamented that we can turn our eyes to heaven, realizing the fullness of sin that has been forgiven and cry out to God, hallelujah for the work that he has wrought in Jesus So church, weep and wait expectantly knowing that God has not abandoned us but that his kingdom is coming soon. Let's pray. Eternal Father, You are good beyond all thought. But I am vile, wretched, miserable, blind. And Though our lips are ready to confess, oh, how our our hearts are slow to feel. And how reluctant we are to mend our ways before you. So God, as a church, we bring our souls before you, asking that you would break them. Wound them, bend them, and mold them. Unmask to us now all of sin's deformity and its work in our lives, that we would hate it, abhor it, and flee from it. God, we confess that our faculties have been a a weapon, of revolt against you and the coming of your kingdom. As a rebel, we have misused our strength and serve the foul adversary of your kingdom. God, give grace that we would mourn over our folly. God, grant us to know that the way of transgressors is hard. And that evil paths are wretched paths. And that to depart from your way. To depart from the way that you have before us is to lose every good thing. God, we have seen today the purity and the beauty of your perfect law. The happiness of those in whose heart it reigns, the one that can say that your mercy is new every day. Your loving scripture works within me to bring about warning. It speaks in startling providences, allures me with secret whispers. And yet I choose devices and desires that only end in hurt. That spurn on grief and resentment and provoke you to abandon me. But God, you have not abandoned me. You have not abandoned us. So all of these sins, we mourn them, we lament them, and we cry out to you now for pardon. Work in us more profound and abiding repentance than we have ever known. Give us the fullness of godly grief that trembles and fears yet ever trusts and loves Grant us now through the tears of repentance that we would see more clearly the brightness and glories of your saving cross. Do this work in us, we pray. Amen. As we play for the next few minutes.